Hello, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, and this episode, I will be looking at the story The Moonbog. Uh, this is part of a series looking specifically at the Lovecraft stories that were written from 1920 to 1924. And there's a whole lot of them. It's, uh, you know, it's almost over a third of all of Lovecraft stories were written in this period of time. Although many of them are short, it, it does make up like a big chunk, almost half really, of the total number of stories he wrote in his, in his life were, were written in this period. Very, very productive time. At a time where we start to really see um, Lovecraft still maybe copying Poe and Dunsey and others in style, trying to find his voice, experimenting on a lot of different things. But it's also we start to see really uh, some of Lovecraft's core uh, concepts really uh, come out very strongly. And I think this is one of those stories that does that. I, I this is the Moonbog. I think is not one of his most well-read stories. Um, I haven't seen too many people talk about this story. It's not often mentioned uh, in the Klinger anthology that I've been working on from the two-volume anthology for this podcast. Um, the Moonbog's not even included, and I, I think it's one of the big mistakes. I, I've said before, I think he should have just included all the other stories, yeah, at least maybe from The Beast in the Cave on. Uh, but, you know, whatever reasons were given for not including those handful of stories that, that weren't, weren't in the anthology, I don't think that fits the Moonbog. The Moonbog really is an important story that that has a lot to say about his development of his ideas. So um, not one of his best, maybe, but certainly a notable one in thematically, I think. So this was written uh, as kind of during a gathering of, of journalists uh, in Boston, of amateur journalists. Lovecraft was a member of amateur journalism, doing a lot of that at the time. A lot of his peer network were amateur journalists. They met in Boston in 1921, and this was written on March 10th. Um, so basically it was a prize competition um, and who could write the best story. And this that evening there was a St. Patrick's Day theme, apparently. And... Um, and he wrote that for that, and and you know he didn't win. So even among those peers, he wasn't it wasn't the best story of you know that had a St. Patrick's Day theme. Um, you know Lovecraft here is setting this story in Ireland. I think that's that's the main way he kind of ties St. Patrick's Day to it is with uh, setting it in Ireland. And I think it's the only story of his set in Ireland. There's there's a handful set in England, of course, uh, but not in Ireland. Uh, this was not published, though, until June 20, 1926 uh, in Weird Tales. So it was published in his lifetime, but not published until, until then. So let's, let's jump into it. So our narrator uh, is an American. Uh, our main character, Dennis Barry, is also an American. They're separate. The narrator is, is part of the story, though. He's not just an outside observer. Um, so w as, when the story opens, we're told that Dennis Barry, his, his friend has vanished. The police can't find him, nor can they find others. So there's other people who vanished uh, in County Meath. This is where the stories um, take place. It's um, in a fictional town called Kildare. Uh, but I think County Meath is, is a real place. And, you know, it, it kind of starts in a, in a way we've seen before where he says, oh, you know, my friends disappeared and now, you know, if ever I hear something, I freak out. It's like in the horror of Red Hook, right? It's the main character of that story. Whenever he sees a like 
brick buildings of a certain type, he, he blanches, right? Uh, in this case, it's frogs piping in swamps or the moon in lonely places are what caused him to blanch or to remember this horrible, the horrible events of the story. So we know how it's going to end up, that Barry's going to um, vanish at some point. So here were good, they were good friends back in America. Dennis Barry um, is, is Irish-American, obviously, uh, raised in America. So I guess his parents maybe were immigrants. Um, I don't know. We don't get the whole genealogy here. Yeah, all we get is that his father had come from Kildare. So, but we don't get like really what he did. I just assume knowing what we know about Irish immigrants, who's probably you know came in into working class origins. So he's he's kind of a self made man, Dennis Barry, uh, and he grew rich in America. So he kind of fulfilled the American dream, um, and and he's wealthy enough through the money he makes in America to buy back, to buy the old castle, the old family estate in Kildare. Um, now, what's not clear is the deeper family history here, because if he was rich enough to own a castle, I'm not quite sure why he's leaving for America, uh, his father. Maybe this was a family that in some, some decline before his father decided to leave. Um, but anyways, he wants to go back to Kildare. He wants to enjoy his wealth, go back to his ancestral home. Um, here's the story we get of the background, though. Quote, Men of his blood had once ruled over Kildare and built and dwelt in the castle, but those days were very remote, so that for generations the castle had been empty and decaying, end quote. Um, so that family's in some decline. It's, it's kind of a gothic trope, of course, is the declining uh, elite family uh, in a declining building. But, you know, the, he comes back to restore it. In, in a way, you're going to think, wow, isn't this Rats in the Wall? And in a way, it, it's very different from Rats in the Wall. Um, it, the importance here isn't so much the family history as it is in the Rats in the Wall, but the idea of an American coming back to the homeland in Great Britain to restore a castle, very, very similar. Um, I think he maybe reworks it in Rats in the Wall, reworks this idea because he liked it. Um, so anyways, he begins to engage in the reconstruction of the, of the castle. And one thing very important here, and I think that's a little bit different in Rats in the Wall, where there's, there there's much more of the effort to restore the castle in its own way. And here, he's a bit he's practical. He's a businessman. He's made his money. So he wants this estate to be profit-earning. He he's more practical about how he restores it. Um, now, who's doing the restoration? Well, he just kind of hires the local peasants. Uh, he just So there's a class dimension here where he comes back and just kind of rounds up all the local peasants and gets them to help restore the walls, restore the, the castle. Um, but, you know, they're peasants, so they start to say weird stuff and, and, and talk about uh, weird threats. They start to pray at strange times, and it's just kind of bizarre. Um, quote, to quote Lovecraft here, quote the narrator, uh, and how the peasants blessed him for bringing back the old days with his gold from all over the sea, but then came troubles and the peasants ceased to bless him and fled away instead uh, as if from a doom, end quote. So they basically become afraid of the castle at some point. That, that's really what happens. Um, so now he's lonely because the peasants aren't really hanging around him anymore. So he gets a bit lonely. So he calls the friend, the narrator, to, to come to Ireland and help him with his labors and help him with the restoration of the castle. Um, and then we're introduced to the bog, and the bog is this, the start of his troubles. And he explains this, Barry explains this to the narrator. And that I found really interesting is that um, 
you know, there's kind of this idea that there's like American efficiency here, this idea of if we're going to restore this castle, you know, we have this bog and there's no reason not to drain it and make it farmland or, or drain it and get the peat so we can sell the peat. There's a use we can have for this. It's, as a bog, it's useless, but we should drain it, right? But that's what pisses off the peasants and begins to, to scare them, right? Um, um, now, we get before, before he gets there, though, before he gets to Kildare, he's he like travels. Our, our narrator travels from America to Ireland, probably goes to Dublin, and then has to travel by road to Kildare. And on the way, he talks to the local people, and they're all like, you know, stay away from that place. Kildare's not on the railway, though, so he has to get local help, drivers and stuff, and they all warn him. So we got these vernacular beliefs about the danger of this of this area, right? Um, so he finally gets there and he's like, why is everyone saying weird stuff about this castle and this in this home? You know, what's going on here? And then Barry says, OK, I'll tell you that it all the trouble really begins when I tried to drain this bog. But he says, like, I just couldn't leave this bog uh, untouched because although I love Ireland and I love the, the scenery, it's just having a bog is useless. You know, we can open up the land, uh, cut up the peat and all that. And Lovecraft writes, the legends and superstitions of Kildare did not move him, and he laughed when the peasants first refused to help, and then cursed them when they went away to Balalog with their few belongings as they saw their determination. As he saw their determination. So they're ser- the peasants are serious enough that when they learn that Derry is going to insist on draining this bog, that they actually leave. They pick up and leave Kildare entirely, so they're that frightened of it. Um, but the beliefs at this point are all ba- vague, and but Barry starts to get some story, and our narrator starts to get some truths about it. Basically, this is the legend they get. Um, quote, They had to do with some preposterous legend of the bog, and a grim guardian spirit that dwelt in the strange olden ruin on the far inlet I had seen in the sunset. There were da- tales of dancing lights in the dark, in the moon, and of the chill winds when the night was warm, of wraiths in white hovering over the waters and of an imagined city of stone deep below the swampy surface, right? So underground cities or underwater cities are something we've seen before. We've seen it in the temple, seen it in Dagon, seen it in uh, the doom that came to Sarnath has kind of an ancient underground city. The people of Ib kind of uh, move there. So anyway, if we get this underground city, uh, talked about and also all these wraiths and demons and and all this weird ancient history and he's able to dig up a little bit more of the history itself and this is something i want to like save in my mind and come back to when i look at the letters because in the, several of his letters he does talk about this the peopling of britain uh, especially with robert e howard he had several letters talking about his view on the peopling of great britain uh, and like what people moved in and the origin of the languages and the linguistic diversity, especially the Celtic migrations, right? I mean, the Anglo-Saxon migrations of the like the 10th, 8th, 9th, the post-Roman era, fairly well known. A little bit harder to trace the Celtic migrations, especially at Lovecraft's time. So it's kind of, you know, when did people first move to the British Isles, right? Um, but the, whatever these stories are, they seem to go back that far. Um, for instance... Quote, in the Book of Invaders, it is told that these sons of the Greeks were all buried at Tallgate. But old men in Kildare said that one city was overlooked, saved by its patron moon goddess. End quote. So this Hellenic connection, this is something Lovecraft uh, read about. And this was, a, I think, a popular idea at the time that uh, actually, you know, Greek 
explorers and travelers who, of course, were moving all across the Mediterranean. You know, they also were the first settlers of, of the British Isles. And maybe at the time there was some linguistic evidence for it. I don't think it holds up, um, but, you know, some people may believe that. So anyways, we start to get this, uh, the, the, the narrator begins to investigate, um, but Barry, investigate the legends and the myths. Barry doesn't want anything to do with them. He thinks they're just stupid, but he himself is an investigator in that he has an interest in antiquities. So he's more like the narrator in The Nameless City who madly digs underground to where he should not go because of the, you know, the dangers of unlocking some ancient civilization. Um, and that's where his investigation takes him. Um, and to do that, he has to drain the bog, right? So he's kind of got a couple of motivations for draining the bog. Uh, the narrator, though, he's more interested, I think, in the traditions and the mythology of it all. And I think that's an interesting contrast here in the, in the story. But anyways, the, the work must go on. The peasants flee and the work must go on. But Barry basically brings in workers. He brings in other workers from, from, from elsewhere to do the labor of draining the swamp and restoring the castle. And as this work is going on, uh, the narrator begins to see things uh, out there uh, in the bog. Um, for instance, uh, quote, far out across the brooding bog, the remote olden ruins on the inlet gleaming white and spectral, uh, end quote. He also begins to have dreams. And these dreams seem to be influenced in his mind by the legends that Barry told him about the bog and, and the local history and all that stuff that he sort of ignores is not important. But he starts to have these real dreams and he, he, they go so far as to um, even in the dreams, people speaking Greek. Um, Barry doesn't take these dreams seriously, but it seems he's not the only one dreaming because many of the laborers begin to sleep in. And for like six days in a row, they, they sleep in and they get to work very tired despite having slept in. So it seems that they are dreaming as well. So our narrator takes to... <clears throat> wandering about uh the the area kind of investigating his dreams he takes this stuff a little bit more seriously he, he's still primarily a rationalist and he doesn't accept what happens to him but he's a little bit more open-minded uh, and he does talk to the laborers for instance he also has more contact with them dennis barry is a bit aloof from the working class he's a little bit more elitist in his approach um, but our narrator isn't and our narrator you know talks with the the laborers um, and most of them are really bothered by their dreams that they've been having. And there, there's a point of agreement between the narrator and the laborers about the dreams, particularly on the sounds like piping, like flute sounds that, that that's kind of consistent across the dreams. Um, so he goes back to the castle, hanging out with his friend, Barry, um, Dennis, I guess I should name him. Barry's his last name. So, but he's hanging out with Barry and he's just this totally uh, nonchalant about the beliefs and the attitudes of the laborers. Um, but he's starting to like, the narrator is starting to be more bothered by these dreams and stuff. But um, the, Barry says, well, I'm going ahead. In two days, we're going to be draining the, the swamp. And that night he has another dream. And I'll just read it for you because it's, it's um, quite uh the description is quite nice. Uh, quote, and that night, my dreams of piping flutes and marble pestiles came to a sudden and disquieting end. For upon the city and the valley, I saw a pestilence 
descend, and then a frightful avalanche of wooded slopes that covered the dead bodies on the streets and left unburied only the Temple of Artemis on the high peak where the aged moon priestess Cleus lay cold and silent with a crown of ivory on her silver head. So we got this Greek connection again, right? I, I think the, the kind of the anthropology of the story um, is Ireland being settled by ancient Greeks. Right? I think that's that. But again, I think that was in the anthropological literature at the time or the linguistic literature. People are trying to dig up what's the origin of like the Celtic languages or whatever. Now, there might be very there might really be connections because the Celtic languages are, I think, Indo-European, as are the Greeks. So they're kind of have a the common root. But um, I think they were still working out the Indo-European theory, although I think the foundations of it were laid by the late 19th century. Um, anyways, when we get to the Lovecraft Howard letters, we're going to come back to this, this, this question of, of how Britain was peopled initially. So anyways, that night he awakens and it, it's, it's like the middle of the night. It, it's two o'clock in the morning. He wakes up and he hears this fluting, this piping, this, this flute sounds from, from outside the castle. And he looks outside and then he sees like this, these cultists chanting. And, you know, that is such a, a typical Lovecraft like trope, isn't it? Like the cultists in a group, you know, around an altar or something, praying to Shub uh, Niggereth or, or Yogg-Sothoth or something. But actually, if you look at Lovecraft stories, that image... Of, of the of like the the hooded cultists rarely happens I, I mean I'm struggling to think of an example I mean you have I guess in the call of Cthulhu you have the mulattoes and sailors and mixed breed people in the New Orleans cult but it's not that that image of the hooded cultist isn't there that really comes out of later writers I think mostly and and, and some of like the call of Cthulhu game and all that stuff um, if I see it, I'll, I'll take it back. But I, I can't think of that image of of the cultists in a group praying around an altar or something. But this is pretty close. This is fairly close. Um, quote, to the sound of reedy pipes that echoed over the bog, there glided silently and eerily a mixed throng of swaying figures, reeling through such a revel as the Sicilians might have danced to Demeter in the olden days under the harvest moon behind the scene. The wide plain, the golden moonlight, and shadowy moving forms and above all, the shrill, monotonous piping produced an effect which almost paralyzed me. So the laborer sort of became cultist. I, I think we're kind of piecing together what's happening here is that the dreams are basically a reflection of this real event that's taking place. And they're just not remembering it as a real event. They're remembering it as dreams. And that's why there's these common uh, things in all the dreams, particularly the piping music. Um, but he kind of, he sees it and then he kind of Freaks out a bit and he goes back to sleep. So when he wakes up, he starts to, he starts out with doubt, and this doubt quickly gives way to fear because he goes to investigate the. I mean, he starts out with having a doubt of what he saw. He says, "Oh, well, that was just a dream, obviously," um, and he says, "Like I'm given, I'm I'm prone to kind of weird ideas and fanciful beliefs, quote strange phantasms, but I'm never weak enough to believe in them." So he says, I said, I'm just going to talk to the laborers again. So he goes back to investigate the laborers, something Barry never seems to be interested in doing. So he goes to investigate them. And they all, like, again, slept in. <laughs> you know, they, like, they had these weird dreams. So, but this starts to produce a little bit of fear and eeriness in our narrator. And 
And he says, for the first time, felt the touch of the same type of fear that had driven the peasants away. So he starts to understand why the peasants may have left. And he starts to have this, uh, an anxiety about this unearthing of the bog. And we get this desire to forget. I, I've talked so many times in this podcast about Lovecraft and the, the desire to forget, right? The, incent, the necessity to burn the Necronomicon or lock it away at Miskatonic University or don't even open that door. Don't investigate the nameless city. Don't try to piece together the, the, the notes in, you know, that you get from your uncle, like in the Call of Cthulhu. Whatever it is, don't investigate it too much. Best to just lock it away and not know it. And if you unearth things, you're going to unearth like realities that are just too horrifying to, 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 to face. And he starts, to, in, in just one paragraph, he goes from doubt to, to fear to this deep desire to forget. He says, for some unknown reason, I dreaded the thought of disturbing the ancient bog and its sunless secrets and picture terrible sights lying black under the unmeasured depth of the age-old peat. That these secrets should be brought to light seemed injudicious, in, injudicious and began to wish for an excuse to leave the castle and the village. Um, so anyways, that's kind of like, that's the first part of the story. The story is broken up into two parts, and that's the end of the first part. Uh, the second part begins with him basically doubting the reality of these things he's been seeing. He, he's still kind of in the doubting side of things, but... Um, you know, he mentions again also the disappearances that we know happen because that's the first paragraph of the story. We know that the, the laborers disappear and Barry disappears. And, you know, it's kind of news. It's, it's, it's well known. Um, but as we get to the climax of the story, he sort of starts to think about this. We're reminded that these, these men disappeared. He writes, I thought as I lay there of Dennis Berry and of what would befall the bog when that day came, the day of the draining, and found myself almost frantic with an impulse to rush out into the night and take Berry's car and drive madly to Balango out of the menaced land. So he has a desire, desire to free, flee, just like the peasants previously had the desire to flee. Anyway, he's thinking about leaving, but he, he falls back asleep. And when he wakes up, he hears the piping sound again, and this awakens him. But he looks out the window at the bog and then he sees something that really horrifies him. And it takes him like, like a whole page to describe what he, what he observes here. And it's, it's quite uh, well done. But he, the, 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 the tone here is one of this deep desire to escape what he's seen. But also uh, kind of this pull between like this curiosity and this desire to flee. Uh, Lovecraft writes, my immediate actions were peculiar for such a situation but it only entails that a man does the dramatic and unforeseen thing. Instead of looking out across the bog towards the source of the new light, I kept my eyes from the window in panic fear, clumsily drew on my clothing with some dazed idea of escape. Now, we don't get the description of what he quite sees yet, but he, he's, he knows it's bad. He knows he shouldn't look. But finally, he overcomes his fright and he looks. And then he sees all these weird lights uh, over the bog, um, Tall forms, to quote, dark, salient forms silhouetted grotesquely against the vision of marble and effulgence. Um, and finally, he sees like a bunch of, of essentially figures like floating over the bog. Quote, um, then my, there my eyes dilated with, again with a wild wonder as great as if I had not just turned from a scene beyond the pale of nature. 
for on that ghastly red littered plain was moving a procession of beings in such a manner as none saw before save the nightmares so it's not in the bog itself so there's the bog and then beyond the bog there's a plane and that, that's like the image you get throughout the whole story um and he sees these figures a procession of figures back there but in the very next paragraph we're told these are white clad bog wraiths and they're going towards this this old ruin that's that's sort of been unearthed in the bog um and they're guided by this this piping and they're they're kind of marching in a kind of rhythm um i'll just read this again uh they're waving translucent arms these are actually wraiths these are actually ghosts of some sort uh they're waving translucent arms guided by the detestable piping of those unseen flutes beckoned in uncanny rhythm to the throng of lurching laborers who follow dog-like with blind brainless floundering steps as if dragged by a clumsy but resilient resistless demon will so they're kind of leading the way and they're being followed by these laborers once again the laborers are sort of seduced to this be take part in these rituals and that's what they seem to be they seem to be ancient uh hellenic rituals from kind of greek religion of the of these early settlers who died there but their ghosts are continuing on these rituals at this this temple that's now been unearthed wonderful stuff here i think and anyways what he sees is that these these spirits he calls them naiads naiads are water nymphs spirit nymphs of some sort um from greek mythology uh or greek uh religion and they like walk into the bog and they they on the bog and they're followed by these laborers who will follow the the naiads the ray the bog race there's different words used for them but they all kind of melt into the bog as well and there's one character we get one kind of distinctive character among the laborers the only one really mentioned in any clear way and that is the cook uh he recognized the cook because he was fat and he's the last one to go in and be drowned in the bog so actually our narrator knows what happened to these people but i guess it's one it's one of those situations where no one believes him and and the popular press just uh props it up as a mystery or our narrator doesn't believe it enough what he saw to to really testify to it and after seeing this, he begins to just pray to the Greek gods because he knows nothing else to do. He just kind of draws from his memory what he knows about the Greeks, and he starts praying to the Greek gods. Um, and and then he hears a scream from Dennis Barry. He's, he's, he calls it like, uh, this is what he writes, the narrator uh, recounts. Soon the shrieks had attained a magnitude and quality which cannot be written off. And which makes me faint as i think of them all i can say is that they came from something i had known as a friend he then just flees he's found the next day like wandering around the streets of the of the nearby town uh balilog which is uh, the place it's, it's 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 i think it's more connected to like civilization than kildare kildare is much more isolated i think it's a nearby like largest town that's connected to anything uh and he he's found there wandering about and he says you know i'm like sort of driven mad by what i've seen but it's not what i've just related it's two incidents that i haven't yet related to you and i'm going to tell you what those are um these are the things that really drove him over the edge two incidents the first is that despite these stagnant waters of the bog not having any animal life before i guess i suppose they have bug life but no and no animal life before is now populated by frogs one of which is this is why the cook was mentioned because there's a correlation between one of these frogs and the cook 
Quote, they glistened, bloated and green upon the moonbeams, and seemed to gaze upon the font of life. I followed the gaze of one very fat and ugly frog and saw the second of my things which drove my senses away. End quote. So the fat and ugly frog is like the, the cook. So the because that's exactly how the cook was described, as, as fat and ugly. Um, he's really described as ugly and unwieldy form of the cook, whose very absurdness now became unutterably tragic. So somehow these people were turned in, these naiads, these bog nymphs, turned them into frogs. The second thing has to do with the moon, right? So the story is called the moon bog, and obviously the bog is there. Now, the moonlight has like, is, is the theme of the moon is throughout the story, but really because of these final lines that the moon becomes portent. Uh, stretching directly from the strange old ruin to the far inlet of the waning moon, my eyes seem to trace a beam of faint quivering radiance having no reflection in the waters of the bog. And upward along that pallid path, my fevered fancy pictured a thin shadow slowly writhing, a vague contorted shadow struggling as if drawn by unseen demons. Crazed as I was, I saw in that awful shadow a monstrous resemblance. A nauseous, unbelievable caricature, a blasphemous effigy of him who had been Dennis Barry. So he sees like an effigy, a blasphemous effigy of Dennis Barry being kind of tortured. Now, I kind of think it's it's him, right? Because that makes the most sense. He's draining the, the bog. He's, um, in a sense, the one responsible for the, these laborers being sent to their, their sort of death and turned into frogs. But the biggest grievance against Dennis Barry would be by these naiads, right? Because it's going to be their temple that's going to be disrupted. It's going to be their ruins that are disrupted and their their traditions. So he is he's murdered by these these um, wraiths um, and tortured, I guess, in some way. And he's seen in the moonlight. I mean, that's really a great imagery. I think it's really well well done here. So that's the plot of the story. Now, is there any discussion to be had of it? Well. Thematically, I think there's a lot going on. I think the the class dimension here, I think, is is, is rather interesting. Uh, you do have like the peasants, the laborers, and the elite. Dennis Berry himself being kind of the new rich, I think, is is relevant. And and his he comes to this back to Ireland with a lot of contempt. He wants to restore this old family history, but he does so with a great deal of contempt for the the people who who live there, um, for their traditions, for their values, for their what they believe, they're, he doesn't even talk to them, right? At least our narrator talks to them, or Barry doesn't even do that. So he is presented as sort of a villainous figure in that way. Um, but the fact that they, they carry on knowledge, that's something we see so many of the stories, that the working class are carrying on certain traditions that others don't have really, the elite don't have the same access to. Um, now, of course, you can get that. You know, Our narrator can just ask them, and they get some clues of it, but it, it's rather hidden. Right? That's why the peasants run away, because they know digging up this bog is bad news. Um, and those beliefs are established very, very early in the story. Um, uh, the role of music here, I, I guess I haven't talked about music much in this podcast yet, but we're coming up upon a story of the music of Eric Zahn, so uh, maybe it's worthwhile to mention music. Uh, sound and music do play a role in many of his stories, and especially in this one, the repetition of the flute sound, of the piping. Um, comes up again in some, some of his tales. Uh, but I, I think this, this you know, just uh, the fact that we sort of have cultic rituals in a group of cultists. Now, these laborers are sort of inadvertent cultists. I mean, they're forced into it by the wraiths, it seems. They're forced to be worshipers. Um, you know, while they're sleeping, they're awakened and forced into this, kind of like zombies. 
But nevertheless, that image of the cultists kind of moving in unison, chanting in unison, doing something together. Now, if this is not common in Lovecraft stories, I don't think it is. It's, it's common in kind of the mythology of Lovecraft and the way we think about him, right? right? Like all the games, you have, you have to fight the cultists, right? Or you break in on the cultists in the middle of some kind of ritual. That's fairly rare in his stories, actually. But, you know, it appears here anyways. And I think that's, that's notable. The other story I think where you really see that is the festival, which we'll get to fairly shortly. It's, it'll be coming up pretty soon. So um, obviously this pre prefigures in some ways rats in the wall and the, the idea of a person coming back from the new world to revive a castle. The family tradition doesn't play a role here so much. It just, you know, now maybe there is a larger story to be told here because the Barry's family had lived there for, for centuries, apparently, so maybe they were a part of it. I mean, certainly by the time he writes Rats on the Wall, which isn't long after this, he has this idea in his head of, of a forgotten family tradition that can be, you know, restored in a way. Actually, in, in um, The Lurking Fear, too. There's a couple of stories that like that. Although Lurking Fear doesn't have the rehabilitation of a, of a building. So anyways, this is a story that's worth looking at. If, if you've read Lovecraft but not come across the Moonbog, check it out. It's, it's not one of his best stories. I think it has some significant faults. But I think there's enough interesting stuff in here to, to keep our interest and, and to, to remind us of its relevance. So anyways, that's going to be it for now. Um, let me know what you think of the Moonbog if you've read it. Send me your comments. Uh, leave a review on iTunes and, and leave your comments there. Uh, or send me an email, hit me up on Twitter, whatever. Um, in the next episode, I'll be looking at The Outsider. It's a, one of his more famous stories. It's um, an important story. I think it's one of his most commonly read stories just by people who maybe read one Lovecraft story. It's, it might be The Outsider, a very, very famous one. So um, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to go at it yet, but I'm thinking about it. I'm going to be rereading it again, and, and, and then I'll give you my thoughts when I finally decide the way I want to go with it. So uh, that's going to be it for now. So the Moonbog, decent story, um, worth checking out. I will see you next time.